you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to pick up in verse 32 of chapter 9 as we continue to walk through um, the book of Acts. I want to give just a mild introduction here. One of the primary subject matters that we're going to be talking about uh, this morning may make us uncomfortable, and that's okay. Um, But we are going to uh, look at things that we might all disagree on so that we might grow regardless of where we are in our journey with Jesus Christ. So there are going to be times when we're talking about race. We're going to be talking, there will be times when the word prejudice is going to come up. And believe me, I did not choose these subjects because I thought, you know, if ever there is a pool of water where everyone can get together and, and bask in the glow of unity, it is on these social issues. I would rather not, to be honest with you. But the text speaks to it. And because the text is speaking to it, that is what we will study because that is what is next. And whatever is next in the Word of God is what we will study. Amen, church? We don't choose. It chooses for us. So we will teach what is in front of us, even if it makes you mad at me, even if it makes you disagree with me. But I would rather you trust me and not be happy with me than be happy with me and not be able to trust me. So here we go. Although I'd rather not have to choose between those two. I'd like to take one from each and put them together if that is an option. Picking up in verse 32. Now as Peter was traveling through those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Arrhenius, who had been bedridden for eight years and he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Arrhenius, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed And immediately he got up. That is a miracle. All who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, the paralyzed man, and they too turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in the Greek, and you'll find out why it's translated in the Greek in a little bit, called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they washed their body, they laid it up into the upper room, because there's a history within the Old Testament of people in the upper room being resurrected. So they're like, hey, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay and come to us. So Peter got up and he went to them. When he arrived, they brought him to the upper room. And the window stood, be, uh, I'm sorry, in all the, the windows. The widows stood beside him. But there had to be windows in that upper room. So I believe that. Contextually, I am still accurate. And your laughter is prejudice against me. Now... All the widows stood there weeping and showing all of the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and he knelt down on his knees and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said to Tabitha, Arise. And she opened her eyes 
And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, they raised up, and he called all the saints to the windows and presented her alive, widows. And it became known all over Joppa, many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days. This is odd. This is just an odd last sentence. But it's a reason, there's a reason Luke wrote it there. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. With that, let's ask God's blessing, and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Father, that I am completely dependent on you to teach your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide my thoughts, that I would remember my studies. But above all else, that I, would, that I would not be offensive, even if the message is. My prayer is that people would hear what is being taught, whether they like it or not. But I ask that I not be a distraction to it. Father, I pray that you would work in, in my life in such a way that I would be completely hidden behind this message. I pray that I would get completely lost behind you, my master. That it would be very plain that the words I speak and the power in which I speak them is yours and not mine. I confess my sins, of which almost all of my sins, Lord, I confess are on purpose because I love myself. I confess those sins and I ask that you wash my feet. Ever so thankful that you have washed my soul. Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and that the ground of our hearts would not be rocky or hard or packed down, but broken and fertile. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious and Holy name. And if you're awake, say something. There we go. Sometimes what stops us from doing something comes down to two words that start with P. And those words are power and prejudice. However, it was prejudice over power that was one of the most devastating things to the early New Testament church nearly 2,000 years ago. And do you know what? Very, very little has changed in 2,000 years. What we will witness in the next 12 verses is nothing less... Let me fix this because it's driving me nuts is nothing less than a prelude to what we are going to see in chapter 10. Let me say that again. These 12 verses of these two miracles in these two locations locations, are are really um, going to, while they're going to offer a lot of application in our study today, they are but a prelude to what Luke will bring up in chapter 10, When Cornelius, the Roman Gentile centurion, sends for Peter, and Peter bestows the Holy Spirit on them. 
But before that moment can happen, two things must be clearly understood, and it is found in these 12, 13 verses. The power to save is of God, and our prejudice, no matter what they may be, has no place in the true church of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, we are going to be, and this is a condensed version of 32 through 43, and we are going to be staying on this slide the whole time. And by the time we are done with this slide, it's going to be an absolute mess. So take a look at it right now. That's as clean as it's going to get, all right? So here we go. We are about to study two amazing miracles, which, by the way, are almost word-for-word parallel to the miracles that Jesus performed when he raised someone from the dead and he raised a paralyzed person to health. So the question rises is, why are these two miracles recorded in the book of Acts? Well, the answer is ultimately found in chapter 10. We discussed that, as Cornelius will soon be coming on the scene. But we can see a foreshadow of why these miracles are happening, stated twice in this short section of verses. In fact, we see it in verse 35, that many turned to the Lord, and we see it, I believe this is verse 42, that they believed in the Lord. So the purpose of these miracles is not just so someone can walk and someone can have have some borrowed time living again, but so people may see them and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that these amazing miracles are not recorded so that we can go and do likewise. These are not recorded so that we can go and do likewise. Luke is not saying to us, go and heal the lame and raise the dead. This is primarily a ministry of the apostles so that the gospel would spread. We can see it highlighted in two boxes. So that the gospel could spread. And it would spread in the early church and it would authenticate that what they are saying is from God, especially in light that the New Testament has not been written at this time. But let me be clear, I am not limiting God by making these statements God can still do miraculous things if he so chooses to bring glory to himself. Would you agree with that, church? We cannot put our God into a box. What I am saying is that these kind of miracles and these kind of gifts are not normative. In fact, those of you who would like to raise your hand, how many here have actually raised someone from the dead who was near a window in the upper room? Who here has ever done that? Now, I think we could extrapolate this this exit poll and agree that it is not normative. How many here have seen a an actually paralyzed man be raised to full health? You know, a lot of time in our, our modern day healers, you ever notice they're healing heartburn? You ever notice they're healing intestinal issues? I'll leave it there. This guy can walk again. He's making his bed again. The dead rise. We must remember that God in his wisdom, by the way, willed that these two miracles take place. Now grab this. In a sea of people. In a sea of people who did not get healed or raised from the dead. All the blue people are still in the grave. And they are still lame. Yet yet two are raised. Why them? Why them? 
Why these two? These healing took place for two reasons. To show us the power of the gospel. We'll see that in a moment. And that the gospel has no prejudice. Power and prejudice. So let's start out with the power of the gospel first. Again, these two healings are not prescriptions of what we should do, but rather a description of what the gospel does. Grab the distinction. It's not what we should do, it's what the gospel does. It is no accident that these two miracles are almost identical to the two miracles that Jesus performed when he was seeking to save the lost. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. You'll find those miracles in Mark chapter 9, and you'll find them in Mark, or Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5. You see, what these two miracles picture is our spiritual condition without God. These miracles took place so that many would come to know the gospel, but it's also a picture of our spiritual condition before God. Like Arrhenius, who for eight years was paralyzed, and Tabitha, who was dead. My friends, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, without the the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are spiritually paralyzed, unable to do a single work, unable to take a single step towards God because we are dead in our sins. We are unable to live in any manner that pleases God. My friends, the reason these two miracles or these two are saved amongst thousands who were not is because it is a picture of man's total depravity outside of the effectious work of God. And that is the whole reason. Turn people to God for salvation because we are paralyzed and dead in our sins. What a beautiful picture we have here. My friends, dead and incapable of salvation on our own. My friends, there is nothing inside of us that can find. There is nothing inside of us that can find, choose, or move towards salvation. Our salvation rests in the power and the will of an almighty God so that no man can boast before Him. Here it is, here it is. It is all of God. Do we need to wake up, shake hands? I mean, because that was a big piece of red meat there. It's all of God. But I want to stop for just a moment. I want to stop for just a moment. It is possible for us to be a hindrance of the gospel in our lives. And in this case, and within this context, because whatever is in front of us is what we are going to study, In this case, in this context, it is prejudice. It is prejudice. A person's attitude of a different class of people who has no experience or or knowledge of them, a person's attitude towards a different class or even birth it out a little bit more, a person's race. Now, prejudice can come in many forms. In our day and age, the hot button is the prejudice that bears out racism. How many here have, have mildly heard the term racism in America in, I don't know, in the last couple hundred years? Especially within the last 10 years. 
especially in the last month, in the last day, in the last hour. Everywhere we move, our society is trying to get us all into small little groups and attack one another so that we need a hero called a politician. Let me tell you something. There is no hero found in a politician. The hero is Jesus Christ. I'm tired of all this this tribalism and pitting one another against each other. That's what's going to happen here. Now, prejudice can come in many forms. Ours, that we hear a lot, is racism. But let me, so let me be clear, and you can affirm this with an amen. There is no room for prejudice and racism for those in Jesus Christ. Shouldn't be. Maybe a Buckeye fan. I don't know that we're still, we're still kind of weighing that out, all right? But prejudice can come in other forms as well. It can come in other forms. We may not like certain kinds of traditions. How many here could admit that maybe if we put our imaginations to it and we opened up our heart, we could see within the church that people could be prejudiced against another group of believers. (laughs) Isn't Satan crafty? Prejudice against other believers Because they have different practices and traditions. That could never happen, could it? We can be prejudiced over traditions or certain kinds of sinners. You ever notice that? We can be prejudiced against different kinds of sinners. You ever notice we tend to be very tolerant of those who sin the way we sin? Can I get a witness to that at all? It's kind of like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I've been there. It's sin, but oh, the grace of God. But someone who sins different from us, oh boy, that goes just a little bit different, doesn't it? But the prejudice that Peter struggles here is no secret. Peter does not like Gentiles. Peter does not like Gentiles. Peter, by the way, comes from a long line of strong racial prejudice in a Jewish culture. He's birthed from it. Jews hated Gentiles. Now, let me give you some, idea, some, some evidence of this. So much so that if a Jewish mid, midwife, if it, in fact, there it is. If a Jewish midwife saw a Gentile woman in the throes of labor and was in desperate need of help, rabbinic law forbid that a Jewish midwife could help a Gentile woman in labor for it would be better that two Gentiles die than be added to the nations. Do you see the prejudice there? By the way, in this day and age, Jews called Gentiles goyims. And then they would and spit on the ground for even having to say that word out loud. Which, by the way, that word goyim means nations. Remember Jonah and the whale? Remember how tolerant Jonah was? Does anyone remember that story? You know, a lot of times we get lost in the cute little whale, you know, and then for three days a foreshadow of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was a lot of prejudice in this man. God told him to share the gospel to the Ninevites, Gentiles, And Jonah preferred to be thrown off a boat in the middle of a storm and die rather than help. 
the Gentiles. And then God spared the Gentiles uh, and, and spared his judgment, and they repented. And Jonah got what? Talk to me, church. He got mad. He got mad at God for showing grace on these goyims. When Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, almost universally Jewish believers in first century Israel thought Jesus was talking about reaching all the Jews in that areas, in those areas. You mean the, the dispersed Jews in those areas. Now, one might say, boy, that Jewish culture was really prejudiced. But let us have some intellectual integrity here and be historically fair. The Ninevites hated the Jews. The Ninevites hated the Jews. The Philistines hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Philistines. The Amorites didn't like the Philistines or the Jews. And the Amorites hated the Israel. The Egyptians enslaved them. The Romans hated them. They hated the Arabs. The Arabs hated the Hittites. The Hittites, Hittites hated the Romans. And each had a hate for one another in varying degrees. You starting to see a theme? They were all known for having strong prejudices and birthed out of that racism. They were prejudiced both socially, nationally, racially. All of this, by the way, is as old as mankind. In fact, there's even a proto-racism that you can trace back nearly 2,400 years ago when a very minimally known man by the name of Plato wrote this. In 430 B.C., is it right that Greeks should sell Greeks into slavery? Ought we not to do all we can to stop this practice and substitute other races to spare our own? Prejudice is as old as dirt. I've even heard rumors that white Europeans have been known to have prejudice and racism as well. It's been on the news here and there. Contrary to the great historian Whoopi Goldberg, who, by the way, made her apology tour, and we accept apologies here, Nazi Germany hated Jews, called them an inferior race. Why do I bring this up? Why do I bring this up? I want to make a quick point. Prejudice is a humankind problem. It is not exclusive to one race. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth. It is not politically correct, but it is biblically accurate. I remember not too long ago, I was hiking. I like to hike. And I was eavesdropping on a college sophomore. Those are fun things to listen into. Pontificating on the subject of prejudice. Splashing around in the shallow waters of selective teaching and pre-approved thought. Ranting about how prejudiced and how evil Christopher Columbus was. And then used that as a vehicle to veer off into how all white people are inherently evil. You ever notice those who claim to be anti-racist often fight racism with racist presuppositions? And I'm doing this the whole time. 
because I want to share the gospel desperately, all right? And I'm angry. Righteous anger. And I finally broke in. I said, you know what? I hear what you're saying. And I agree with you that he did evil things to people. And it should not be excused. However, the evils that he brought with him existed in the new world long before he ever got there. Mouth went open. She looked at me in utter horror. A non-pre-approved thought had been uttered. Before he even arrived, indigenous people went to war with one another over land, resources, beliefs, traditions. They took slaves and purchased slaves. Now let me be clear, prejudice in America and the inherent racism that can be born from it is evil and should not be tolerated in any form. My point is this, the evil of prejudice is not exclusive to one race. The evil of prejudice and that of racism is a problem within the human race and it is evil it must be repented and it must not be tolerated now why do i bring this all up the answer to racism and or prejudice because they are not necessarily synonyms of one another the answer to this is is not found in pitting rich against the poor or straight against gay or white against black or liberal against conservative the answer to these things is not turning on one another the answer is found in turning to Jesus Christ our lord that's the answer Allow me to give you what could be played out in just about any situation or construct. If the government took all of the money away from a rich person and gave all of that money to a poor person in the name of equity, got quiet in here, what would that produce between those two people? Anger. Bitterness. Punitive retaliation and broken fellowship. Now, what would happen if a rich man and a poor man or woman or person, if a rich and poor person, they both authentically found and truly found Jesus Christ, what would that produce between these two different groups of people? Generosity, sacrifice, love, forgiveness, restoration. Which brings us back to total depravity. One is not evil because they are white or they are black or they are Asian or they are rich or they are poor. But rather, we are all evil, absent from Jesus Christ, because we are born dead in our sins and paralyzed to do anything about it. My friends, the answer to what divides people of every tribe and every nation and every social, economic, and geopolitical divide is not found in some revised version of CRT. And let me be clear, neither is it found in the good old American way. The answer is found in life-transforming, sin-repentant, gospel-receiving, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. No government will ever rest perfectly on the nations until it rests on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. 
So God is going to begin to break down Peter's walls of prejudice one person and place at a time. And it is found where he goes and who he meets. He finds himself in Lydda by a, a man named Aeneas. I can't say that word. Peter steps into the shallow end of the pool here of his prejudices and starts to get a little uncomfortable in a good way. He steps into the shallow end of the pool by being here. Lydda is partly Gentile in culture. Now, Arrhenius is a Jew, so he is slightly out of his comfort zone when we see this here. Partly Hellenistic, partly Gentile. This is a, this is, you know, a, a, a very light blend of, of being outside of his comfort zone. And then he moves over to Joppa to a disciple named Tabitha. By the way, the only time the feminine form of the Greek word Matthias of disciple is found in the New Testament. She was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to see here is the progression. Joppa was far more Gentile than Lydda. It is a distinctly Gentile city in fully Hellenistic Gentile territory. And now I want you to see the progression because soon he will leave Tabitha's house after showing her in the window. He will leave that house and he's going to Joppa, which is fully Hellenistic and Gentile territory, and he's going to spend many days with a a tanner. Now you may say, so what? (laughs) Well, for a Jewish man to spend time with a tanner, especially in Gentile territory, it was considered an anathema to a fastidious Jew accursed for a Jew. Tanners were ostracized and had to live 50 cubits out of town, which is roughly around 100 feet. If your daughter was legally engaged, if your daughter, which by the way, see, when you get betrothed in first century Israel and you you get engaged, that's just not, hey, here's a ring. You kind of want to make a commitment here. It was a legal binding contract i.e. when Joseph wanted to divorce or put away Mary when she was pregnant with, with, the, with, with Jesus Christ, he, 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 he legally would have to leave her. Engagements were legally binding thing. And if you found out that your daughter was engaged to someone who was a tanner and you didn't know about it, you could, without question, Get divorced from that tanner with no problems or penalties. Why? Well, because they are considered perpetually unclean people. Perpetually unclean people to be around. And they constantly were touching dead animals. So here is what I want you to see. Peter has gone from roaming primarily Jewish territory Speaking to Jewish people, right? He's traveling through all these regions and he's hitting Jew after Jew after Jew in Jewish regions. And then he gets brought to Lydda, which is somewhat a Gentile culture. 
then to Joppa, which is fully Hellenistic Gentile territory, and then finally living in the home of an unclean tanner named Simon in a Gentile land. This is utterly shocking, but what I want you to see here is the progression that is happening as we move towards chapter 10, and a Roman centurion and his family will be there. Here's what we need to see. God is systematically stripping Peter of his prejudices. Peter's attitude towards Gentiles in their world is beginning to soften. His prejudices are wearing thin. Why is God doing this? Because he is about to meet a Gentile Roman centurion that God wants Peter to bring the presence of the Holy Spirit to. Now you may say, Pastor, I think you're reading too much into this text. I think you might be reading too much into these locations. Well, let's just bring up Acts chapter 10, verse 28 then. This is Peter speaking. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner and visit with him. Yet God has shown me that I I shall not call any man unholy or unclean. Any man, unholy or unclean, regardless of their nationality, their race, their traditions, their culture. Any teaching that says this race or this nationality is inherently more wicked than another is biblically inaccurate. We are Children of God. Friends, Peter's prejudice must be broken down because it is antithetical to the gospel and it is devastating to the testimony of Jesus Christ. All that we are seeing here is preparing us for this Roman Gentile centurion. But before we claim our primary application centered around prejudice here, let us remember the twin brother within the context which is the power of God. Power and prejudice. Notice something here. Arrhenius, Jesus Christ heals you. You see it there in the purple. Notice Peter does not say, as as a ministry and as a minister of Peter, and as a ministry of Peter, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that this is not about Peter here. You know, we tend to like to put our names on things, do we not? You notice something more here. When he got down to Joppa, he knelt down, turning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. Almost almost word to word. There's only one letter different than when Jesus raised the young girl to life. Kneeling is a sign of complete dependence on God. That can only that only God can do exceedingly more than all that we ask or think. Now I want to hit a pause button here and we're almost done. I want to hit a pause button here. Because there's a quick application found in between this that I just want to highlight, and it will take me one minute. Notice that when the people were healed, they gave evidence of that healing. Notice they gave evidence of that. Arrhenius got up, made his bed, and went on his way. Tabitha resumed doing many good deeds, and and the, the widows near the window saw her alive. I want you to note something here. Because this is a picture of salvation, the unmistakable evidence of true salvation in Jesus Christ. 
it will be evident to all who knew the person before they were saved and after they were saved. There is, would you agree with me that there is a distinct difference between Tabitha dead on the bed and Tabitha making more tunics and clothes for, for the widows and the needy? Can anyone see the difference between the two? If you can, say amen. You see the difference there? How about the guy who can't walk for eight years? All right? He can't walk for eight years. His legs are, are just nothing. Can you see the difference between laying there and making his bed and walking again? The answer is yes. But this is not just a physical picture. It is a spiritual picture. Here's why I say this. The unmistakable evidence of true salvation in Christ means it will be evident to all who knew the person before and after that salvation experience. It was when others saw the difference in these two individuals that they came to know Christ. Here's the point. What should the people have said in this day and age if Peter said, I've healed them both? And they run in there and he's still on his mat. Or they run up those stairs and and up into the upper room and there still sits Tabitha, lifeless on the bed. What, 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 what would you say if that was the evidence of Peter's healing? Talk to me. What? Fake. What else? It failed. Nothing happened. They're still lame. They're still dead. Here's a question. What should people think if we say that we have salvation in Christ and there is no difference between us now than there was before. Hmm. Do we see why faith without works is still a dead man? I want to hit the play button. We're going to get back in here. So Peter is kneeling and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. People who understand the gospel realize it is not about them. It is all about God. Alexander McLaren says this, the first condition of working for the Lord is you hide yourself behind your message. Jesus Christ saves you. You get lost behind your master. He kneels down and mimics his master. Make it very plain that it is his power and not your own. One of the best compliments I could ever receive when I am no longer your pastor here is that when I depart, you know the name and you know the character And you know the person of Jesus Christ far more than you ever got to know me. I will rest well in my old age or I will rest well in my grave if you know Christ and say, Brett, who? So here it is. Seems kind of an eclectic application here. So let's push them all together and see a beautiful picture. We're going to be done in two minutes. That's a lie. But it will only be minutes. Let's put it all together. Here it is. Ready? Here it is. Go ahead and take a good look at that screen. See everything coming together. Here we go. Because of our total depravity, we are dead and paralyzed in our sin. Like Peter, we must be stripped of all of our prejudices and share the gospel regardless of how spiritually lame or dead a person may be and fall on our knees and say, Who am I, O Lord, that I can raise the dead? Salvation belongs to you. for there is nothing impossible 
for God. My friends, there is no race. There is no sin. There is no culture. There is no situation. There is no creed. There is no class. There is no nationality that is out of the reach of an almighty God. Oh, may we hear today, those of us who claim the name of Christ, we are not the gatekeepers of the gospel. We are the gate leapers with the gospel to bring the never-ending, all-inclusive, all-sufficient power of the gospel in Jesus Christ alone to him be power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Because that is how great our salvation is. How dare we hoard it or think that corpse is more receptible to life than that corpse. Oh, church. The enemy is not a race. The enemy is not one who thinks differently from you. The enemy is not a Democrat or a Republican. The enemy is not male or female or rich or poor. The enemy is sin and death. That's the enemy. And the answer is not found in a better form of government? The answer is Jesus Christ. To all people and for all people. You know, we are slow learners. About 10 years from now, Peter's going to have to be rebuked for his prejudice. But 10 years later, 20 years later, when he writes First and Second Peter to Gentiles, this man here writes a letter to Gentiles and he starts it like this. He says this, My dear brothers, my dear sisters, look at it, and he says this, I love you. That is the power of the gospel, not the power of Prejudice can be repented and forgiven. It's what the gospel does. May we make sure our view of life's issues are not seen through the lens who screams the loudest, but through this lens. This lens. This lens changes lives. Every other lens divides. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather around your table, all so many of our differences evaporate in the searing heat of this one truth. That through your blood and your body, all may come to you. Father, if there is 
prejudice towards one another in this body right now. Church, take time to repent of that right now. That sinner you don't like, that tradition you can't stand, that position you can't tolerate is no different than yours. And all are covered in the blood of Christ. Father, bring our church together in the unity of our Son, not because we conform to one another. What an ugly picture that would be. But we conform to your Son. What a beautiful bride. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.